Lord, you are the King of kings. There is no one like you. There never has been anyone like you. There never will be anyone like you. We are grateful for your presence with us this morning. And we pray for your spirit to rest upon us, that we might learn of the majesty of your incarnation. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Morning. I want to thank Pastor Brandon for his counsel and insight and care for me and my family these past few months. He's a, he's a good man. Why doesn't God do something about this? In my 40 years as a believer, I've heard that question over and over and over again. Why doesn't God do something about this? Now, this is generally from people who, you can drop that volume a little bit. This is generally from people who, through the rest of the year, want nothing to do with God. But when something goes wrong, it's why doesn't God do something about this? I've recently seen headlines that say, God won't fix this with uh, the situation in Paris or San Bernardino or ISIS. In other words, God is disconnected from the world. He doesn't care about what's going on. So despair of him giving us any help whatsoever. He's not going to do anything about this. And yet we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That famous passage from Scripture has been used so often, it's almost to a cliche these days, but the reality is that we forget the intention of that message. God sent his Son into the world, and that's how he displays his love in crisis. He showed precisely how he displays his love, with clarity, so that we are ensured to not misrepresent how his love is shown to the world. God is not going to do anything he hasn't already done. That's the point. He has done something rather significant about the problems and ills of earth. So let's look at this passage in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In this short but magnificent passage in Philippians 2.7, which I've been assigned today, we get a very precise view of how the love of God has transpired in earth. I want us to get a framework for this because God did not emotionally love people in the sense that he overlooks their sin and he just sort of pats us on the head and said, oh, that's okay. God did not love the world in the sense that he's going to take away all of the pain of this time of crisis that we call the world of the fall. We are rebels. This is a rebel planet that is anti-God. And if you don't believe that, look into your own heart on the days that you sin. God loved the world in this, and he sent his own son in the form of a servant that the world might be saved through him. That's how he displays his love, through his son. The love of God is provided through his son and in no other way. It's not something indiscriminate. It's through 
the person of Christ and Christ only. The second person of the Trinity voluntarily giving up status and privilege, becoming a servant and also becoming one of us. Through the incarnation, he's done something great for the troubles of this earth. First of all, he's the selfless servant who became the same as us. In the incarnation, he demonstrated radical selflessness. Radical selflessness. The scripture says he emptied himself. In one place in the Gospel of John, we hear this phrase, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Christ changed complete frames of reference that we can't even grasp because he moved from spirit into flesh. Making himself nothing is this first phrase that we will review today as we talk about this. For Christ, emptying himself was literally a descent. By setting aside his glory, the second person of the Trinity entered space and time. We are always in space and time. He was not in space and time until he took upon himself human form. Think about that. It's impossible to understand. I want you to think about it this way, that at one point in time, infinite God, who has lived forever and ever, amen, who needs no beginning, no end, who is always and forever, who is infinite and glorious and everything, was joined to a single human cell. That was his entry into space and time. This is God in the womb of a virgin in a single cell, beginning to grow like all other human beings grow, going through that whole process. This is a painter becoming the part of his painting. This is the incarnation, the creator literally becoming part of the creation. A simple way to understand, to start to understand this immense theological truth is to think about relocation. Has anybody ever moved from one place to another? I find this to be a universal thing. I can talk to people from Shanghai or India, South America. I I ask the same question, do you know what it's like to move? And they all say the same thing, yes, it's terrible. Well, a long time ago, Mary Jo and I once moved to a foreign country called Minnesota. (laughs) Whenever someone relocates to a a country like that, they find strange things like Ludafisk and Lefsa and Icelandic people that do not understand the Germans. So there were great clashes on the freeway. We misunderstood each other. Whenever someone relocates, they find themselves in strange surroundings, a bit lonely, and clearly an outsider. Let's take this a step further. We recently celebrated Thanksgiving. It's hard for us to imagine that the Mayflower was probably like, if you look around this room, all becoming the closest friends for about six weeks on a vessel that was probably half the size of this building. I want you to think about that for a while. We become very close friends very quickly. They said that they were strangers in a new world, a land of hostile aliens that wanted to destroy them and hurt them, new foods. And yet they were still on Earth. And they eventually adapted, and, and thanks to them, we are here today. Let's take it a step further. Missionaries go to strange lands and see weird things. My brother John, Pastor John Pergina, He's gone to South America and eaten guinea pigs. Think about that for a while. This is weird stuff. This is relocating from one place to another. When missionaries go places, they lose their reputation. No one knows who they are, and they have to start from scratch 
to establish their identity, and yet they're still on the same planet. And I want you to take this a step further. Mary Jo and I recently saw a movie called The Martian. And I want to say as a Christian man, the language is very edgy, so you need to be careful. If you go to the movie, the language is not good. The rest of the movie is great, but just be aware. But think about this man, stranded 850 million miles away, alone, on a planet that was hostile to him where he could die. Now we're starting to get an idea of the distance traveled by the infinite Christ into a finite body. He had to adapt to an atmosphere that he could have killed him, a world that was hostile to his life, but he was still in this universe. The second person of the Trinity created this universe, but he was not in this universe. That alone is a mind-boggling thought. And oh, by the way, when he was a single cell, he was still sustaining the universe at the same time. Think about that this afternoon. That'll exceed your Packer game. (laughs) By entering space and time in human form, he left his self-interest to hide his glory from the heavenly realms. We call this wonderful phrase the kenosis. He made himself nothing. He hid his blazing glory. And though he was in the very form of God with all that entails, and none of us will ever understand that after a hundred million years what it means to be in the form of God, even after we've seen him face to face. He gives us a, a glimpse of this one time when he says, and he's praying with his disciples, and he says in the 17th chapter of John, he says, Now, Father, glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That glory that he knew, that flaming, blazing, brilliant, incredibly powerful glory, the glory of a hundred million suns, fusion reactors exploding. I want you to know Jesus Christ is a very dangerous person. But he's hidden in human form. We get a glimpse of that every once in a while. For example, there's a passage in the Transfiguration where he's with Peter and John And James, and all of a sudden, he cracks open his glory for just a moment. Remember that? The light of his glory comes flaming through, and immediately, Peter wants to do land development. Let's build a temple here. Let's put a temple up there. Let's do this stuff. He gets so excited and revved up because he saw the glory of God for just a moment, and then it closed. Because Jesus is very dangerous, but he's very good. Pastor Brandon last week said this, He had a full awareness of who he was as God. He knew who he was. When we go to get x-rays, we are shielded by lead, right? Because we know the danger of that. Well, you know what he did in the incarnation? He shielded us from his glory by becoming man. But it was all there. That's how he could walk on water. That's how he could change water into wine. That's how he could magnify the loaves and fishes because of his magnificence. But it was Christ in human form, hiding the glory within. I want you to think of the most wonderful day of your life. It may have been a day of, of, of visiting the mountains. It may, it may have been a day where you were at the ocean, or, you, or it was your wedding day, whatever that wonderful day was. And as wonderful as those best days of our lives are, they pale in significance to the glory that Christ left. Even Paul had a sense of that glory. Even within this text that we get in the book of Philippians, remember Paul, he had this Damascus Road experience where all of a sudden he's going, whoa, there's light coming down and I'm scared to death and what's happening and I'm blind because of that. And in the text in Philippians, he says this. He says, 
If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. And then he says this, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Remember one point in time, he was caught up to the third heaven. He had a chance to see that glory. He knew how beautiful that was. That was the glory that the second person of the Trinity said, no, I will hide this in human form. With his first infant cry, he was like Adam coming out of the ground. His lungs filling with air, finding himself alive in an alien world, Christ leaving the voices of angels singing to hear the guttural and vulgar speech of earth. For you, for me, this is his radical selflessness toward people. This is what he's done about the problems of mankind. Nothing in science fiction is as strange as the experience of the second person of the Trinity take upon himself human form. I recommend to you, I'm, I'm taking Pastor Brandon's lead. He always is, he must get royalties for the books that he recommends. I keep thinking about that. This is a book every Christian should read. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I'm going through it for my third time. And in this book, he says, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. We cannot truly grasp this because we are bound by space and time. In one place we read this wonderful phrase, will you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That for you by his poverty might become rich. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the roots of the grace, or the word grace is literally the stronger coming to help the weaker. Here we are on this rebel planet, and God says, I'm coming to descend down there. I'm going to become one of them. I'm going to help them. And yet in the midst of all that, he made himself of no reputation. Have anybody ever seen somebody play air guitar? You know what I'm talking about, air guitar, right? These are for people that can't really play guitar, but there's like world championships for air guitar and stuff like that. I mean, for me as a guitar player, and I'm sure David feels the same way, get a guitar. <laughs> Practice maybe once a week. But they're up there, they're playing. This is because everybody in the world wants glory. Everybody in the world wants some kind of glory, and air guitar is the way. Look at me. But I want you to imagine Bart Starr at Lambeau Field a couple of weeks ago, if he had arrived and walked among those people in those stands and not being known and hid his reputation. Christ's obedience meant to, to condescend, to be humiliated, to be degraded. No one will ever grasp what that meant. I want you to think of somebody like Kanye West who recently named his second child Saint West a reflection of his small ego, perhaps. I want you to think about him going to a tribe in Papua New Guinea where no one knows him, where he abandons all of his worldly fame and serves people in a destitute and dark environment. We maybe get a little bit of an idea of what it means for the glorious Christ to say, Father, sacrifice an offering you would not, but a body you have prepared me. I'm going. So he's the selfless servant who became the same as us. In the incarnation, he became something radically selfless, radically selfless. 
Secondly, he made himself nothing by becoming a servant. He has served us. In this Greek, this phrase, emptying himself or becoming nothing, is qualified by two phrases. The first one is that he's a slave or a servant. He made himself a servant. He chose to be a servant. How many of you have tried to get volunteers to do anything? Right, see? Yeah, we'll volunteer for five minutes. We're good. Got the coffee and donuts. Thanks very much. Have a good day now. No one wants to volunteer for anything because they know it's effort. It's not paid. It's willful. And here this text says he made himself. He chose voluntarily to become nothing. God, the second person of the Trinity, taking the outward form of a servant. The word used here is the word, the Greek word doulos. And you should know this. This is an important word. It's used across the New Testament. Paul introduces Philippians by saying, Paul, a servant, a doulos, a bondservant of God. He introduces Romans that way. Paul, a servant of God, a doulos. It's something the Philippians would have understood. There were millions of slaves and servants throughout the Roman Empire. They did all kinds of things from administrative duties to hard labor. There were multiple, multiple kinds of services as a slave. But the one thing that was true of all of them, their will was not their own. If the, if the master said, tomorrow you're going down into that pit and you're going to dig for five hours, they did that. If the master said, you're going to stand on this corner and do that, they would do that. Their will was not their own. That's what a bond slave is. Their life is not their own. The root of the word doulos means to bind. It was Christ's willful choice in the incarnation to bind himself to us, to take upon that form. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son of the Father, but he came and dwelt among us. He took upon himself flesh. The concept of servant in the American culture is so foreign we can't even grasp it. But it's replete throughout the Bible. I mean, Jesus himself said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve, he came as a servant. I want you to know in my work outside of, uh, of this, uh, this kind of work, do you know that in, in managerial theory, do you know that people are starting to talk about servant leadership? They're starting to find out that servants are actually powerful leaders. There's a whole theory on it I could go into. So the question is, though, whose, whose servant was he? It's really easy to breeze past this little tiny word in Philippians. Go, he made himself a servant. Keep on going. But whose servant was he? He's the prophesied servant. In the Old Testament, we find this phrase referenced again and again and again. But look at this in Isaiah 42. Behold my what? My servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. A year of sermons right there in that text. I have put my spirit upon him. And look at Matthew 12, 18. This was to fulfill what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. All through the Old Testament, we get glimpses of this servant that is coming to do some things. This is the servant. Christ is the servant, not of man, but of God himself. The Father asking the second person of the Trinity to come and serve, and he comes and serves willingly. He's the servant of the Lord. He's here to do the work of God the Father. Come and do my work. I have work for you to do. Expend your energy. Expend your life. Expend your sweat, your blood, and tears. You're here to do my work. And as sovereign God, you will do my work for me until it is done. 
Look at what the scripture says. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. In the body of my mother, he named me. Look at what the scripture says. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be what? His servant. So coming in the form of flesh, he comes for more than just to empty himself of his glory. To hide that. He comes as God's servant. Because God has work for him to do. And then he goes on to say, look at this magnificent text. I will make you a light for the nations. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. That's coming, my friends. That day is coming when he'll bring back the preserved of Israel. Another sermon. I will make you as a light for the nations and look at this, that my salvation will reach the end of the earth. My salvation will reach the end of the earth. There's only one person who that could relate to. The servant, the bond servant of God Himself. I'm giving you this task. You're my servant. You will do these things. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek virgin, version of the Old Testament, the word doulos is used for servant there. Isn't that amazing? In Isaiah 52, which we generally read around Great, Great Friday, Good Friday, the servant is called the arm of the Lord. When we think about strong arms, we think about toil and effort and expenditure. Or, blood, sweat, and tears to, consider, to expend considerable energy. In Isaiah 52, where it said, my servant will act wisely. In Isaiah 53, we read the wonderful passage about what the servant is going to do. And finally, in Isaiah 53, 11, the scripture in Isaiah, Isaiah writes, he said, my servant will justify many. My servant will justify many. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? His last words when he was strung out. It is what? It is finished. The servant is done. I've completed my work. Sovereign God, you gave me this work to do. Sovereign God, I have completed this work. Sovereign God, it is finished. This is the servant who cried out. It's done. This is the servant of the Lord, obedient unto the death at the hands of a sovereign God. Paul was a bondservant. Timothy was a bondservant and others. And then what of us in my own life? Jim, will you be my bondservant? Will you do those things I've called you to without question? Because I am sovereign God and because you are my servant. A sovereign God who has a right to do with me exactly as he chooses. If that was true of the Son of God, it most certainly is true of me. For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. For by one man's obedience, as a servant, the many will be made righteous. He emptied himself by putting himself in the, in the service of his father. This is how God loved the world. We see God has done something about the great troubles of this world. This is how God loved the world by sending his son. He's the selfless servant who became the same as us. And finally, in this text, it says he was made in the likeness of men. He was made in the likeness of men. He's the same as us. He could sit in the pew in his human form, be just like us. As I mentioned, the phrase made himself nothing is, is defined by these two other phrases. He's human through and through in, in his humanity in all his aspects. Remember on the cross, he said, I'm thirsty. He was hungry. 
He had all the vulnerabilities of humanity, the emotional elements. He knew what it was like to be despised and rejected of men. The emotional damage of all that, he gets that. He's within our frame. He's fully human. He's human for the entire race of humans, whether we are Asians or Africans or Americans or South Africans. He's human for all of us. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet was without sin. Truly, fully God, fully man. One person in two natures. Many times in our lives we're the outsider. It could be a new job, a new family, a new volunteer group, a new school. It could be a motorcycle gang. It could be a soccer team. It could be a PhD student, a new employee. You're, you're sort of the outsider. You come in that first day and you're, you're off to the side. But eventually people start to realize, as David talked about this morning with Hudson Taylor, Hudson took upon himself the customs of the land, took upon himself the foods of the land, took upon himself all of those things and became one of them. And finally people turn to that person and says, you're one of us. That's what Christ did. He became one of us. That's exactly what the text says. This is an important point, but there's something even greater here that I want us to think about. In the Old Testament law, we read this. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day, etc. about a slave. He says, but if that slave says to you, if that slave says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he's well off with you, then take an all and put it through his ear, and he will be your servant forever. In the incarnation, Christ has bound himself to human nature forever as the great servant. He willingly has bound himself to us, to human nature forever. He's not distant from our plight. He's joined us in our suffering. He's joined us in our human nature. There's no statute of limitations on this. When you read in the book of Revelation that he has wounds are still there, seated at the right hand of God the Father, his humanity is there with us forever. It won't dissipate. He'll be with us. That's how much he loved us. He's literally taken upon himself our form. He's like one of us. I've often heard in life different places in time where people would look at one another and they'd say, you just don't understand. You don't understand. And we don't understand until we enter something, until we enter a domain. There are places where people would turn to me and say, Jim, you just don't understand. I'd say, you're absolutely right. I do not understand. But if someone said to me, do you know what it's like to have a family member with cancer? I'd say, yes, I understand. I get that. The reality is, is when Christ became one of us, he understood. He entered our domain. He entered our humanity. He's like one of us in totality. No one will ever be able to say to God, you just don't understand. It's not what would Jesus do, it's what did Jesus do. He's the selfless servant who became one of us. You see, Christ is going farther than anyone to share the suffering of this world. He's not distant from it. He's lived it intentionally. He owes us nothing, but in grace, he gives us everything. The conditions we find on this earth are of our own making. The trouble that we have in this world are of our own making. The challenges we face today, whether it's in 2015 or 1815 or 1615, people have been crying out for centuries, God, fix this problem for us. It tells us more about the condition of humanity than God's willing to help us. In times of great stress, I think it's so important for us to keep this eternal perspective. 
problems we have today are just different technologically, but they're the same as the earth has had forever. The desire to change the world has been with us for a long time. I've heard this song, Let There Be Peace on Earth, and Let It Begin With Me, for 50 years. In 1975, I was working, I was, this was a long time ago, I was only, I was only 100 years old at that time. Um, I was working with a guy in a, at, at this company, and I was witnessing to him about Christ, and he turned to me, he said, you know what, I don't need any of your religion, because all we need is more knowledge. If the world gets more knowledge, things are going to get better. And I've heard that since then. That's 40 years ago, folks. That was before the invention of the Internet. We have more knowledge than ever. And you know what? We have more problems than we've ever had. Knowledge is not going to cure that. Humanity is a rebel base. We're here against, opposed to God. People have cried out since the dawn of time to fix the earthly problems that we've created. We have this strange sense of spiritual entitlement. God, come and fix my problem. Instead, he sent his son. He sent his son so that we might be redeemed through him by repenting of our own sins, that he might bless us with rich and lavish blessings in his grace. He's done everything possible to fix the true human condition by becoming one of us. Everything we've ever believed that human beings should do. Have Bill Gates throw away all of his money and maybe that'll fix the problem. Well, the richest of the rich has given everything he could by hiding himself. I want you to think about this moment when the rich young ruler came to Christ and he said, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? What did he say? Keep the law. And the rich young ruler said, I've done all that since my birth. And then Jesus turned to him and he said, now sell everything you have. Because he was the king of the universe and he hid all that behind his human form. And that's why the rich young ruler walked away. What Christ did, no man can do. And so we see at uh, Christmas time the selfless servant who is the same as us. He stooped to our level like a small child and blessed us with his grace. And so there's no more need to ask, what is God going to do about this? He has already done it. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, most majestical God, most perfect, most infinite, most beautiful, most glorious. Lord, in your sight and in your eyes, we are nothing until you make us that which is good. We are so grateful for your incarnation, grateful for your selflessness, grateful for your servanthood, grateful that you are like one of us. And we know, Lord, because you became one of us, that one day we will see you as you are because we will be like you. Amen.